Hello and welcome to Asia In-Depth. I'm Dan Washburn. Today, three global figures and their very personal struggles with coronavirus. Warren Mock is a world-renowned opera singer in Hong Kong. Peter Piat is the director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And Josette Sheeran is president and CEO of Asia Society. They are three of some 20 million people to have been sickened with the coronavirus this year. In this episode of Asia In-Depth, we're going to hear their personal stories of illness, recuperation, and reflection. Their very different experiences provide insight into a fickle disease that, still under a year old, remains little understood by the world's scientific community. And we'll learn how surviving the coronavirus has brought a fresh perspective to each of their lives. Warren Mock begins the conversation describing his trip to New York City in early spring. During my time in New York, you know, that time right before the, the outbreak in New York, so I was everywhere. I was at the Met, Metropolitan Opera, saw an opera there and uh, went to Broadway shows, went to bars, restaurants, all without masks because nobody was wearing masks. If I wore one mask, people would think that I was sick. So I wouldn't even dare to consider to wear a mask. So uh, then, uh, you know, I didn't feel... I feel fine. I felt fine, and uh, and had great time in New York. And I see shows. Went to very great restaurants, and then the nightmare came when I landed in Bangkok, as I said, and uh, tested. My temperature was a little bit high, thirty-two point thirty-eight point two in the Celsius, thirty-eight point two. That's a little bit fever, and they stopped me right there at the airport. So you can't go anywhere. We have to test you right away. Do the you know throat test, the saliva test. And uh, I waited for 10 hours at the airport and then came back. Okay, you will confirm COVID-19 positive. So they took me from the airport directly to the hospital in an ambulance. So I didn't see anything about Bangkok, although I've been there many times. But this time like, like I was taking a vacation, you know. So no vacation from airport to the hospital. And stayed at the hospital for three weeks. Yeah. And, uh, okay, I would say my uh, first experience in the hospital, for the first two days, the doctor said, oh, you have very mild symptoms, no problem, no need to have any medications. So I didn't take anything. But after the third day, my temperature went a little bit higher, like 38.4. And uh, my symptom was headache and low fever. But no sore throat, no coughing, no um, breathing problems. None of that, thank God. So then they gave me a heavy dosage of all the medications available for COVID-19 then. I remember I took like seven different kinds of medications, seven, including one Chinese medicine. Interesting enough, because in, in Thailand, in Bangkok, you could find Chinese doctors, Chinese medicine. So I took that as well, Chinese medicine and all the Western medicines as well. And uh, after one week, my symptoms were gone, and I was all right already. I felt fine. And then, comes another nightmare, my test kept on being positive for quite a long time, for two more weeks in Bangkok, just waiting for the result to be tested negative before I could go back to Hong Kong. You know, if you're tested positive, you cannot be allowed to fly. And so that waiting period, 14 days, didn't have much symptoms anymore. I was fine and uh, just wait for the 
for the test result. So I got finally one day negative, so I could fly back to Hong Kong the next day. But very strangely and ironic, when I landed in Hong Kong, got another test at the airport, the next day, the health department called me in Hong Kong, sorry, you tested positive. So I had to be back to the hospital for another 10 days in Hong Kong. During that 10 days, just waiting for the uh, virus, like shredding, I think. It's, it's not really contagious anymore. But 10 days in the hospital again, without any medication, just testing every day. So all in all, I think I've been tested more than 20 times for COVID-19. 26 days in the hospital in total. You know, I tried my voice, even though I was in the hospital, I had the voice the whole time. So after I came out, my first interview, I was singing a song to the reporters in Hong Kong. So they broadcast on the TV as well. <laughs> to sum it up, I think if you test it early enough, mm -hmm. then COVID-19 is curable. As long as not, you don't have any complications, don't have any other, other disease, you know, then it's okay. It's not that Oh my, I, you know, you, I think you, you both experienced it. I don't think it's so, so scary in my case. I have confidence I would get better. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you, Warren. And um, you raise many important things. We'll come right back to you. I want to turn now to my friend and my colleague, Peter Pia. We have with us one of the world's great public health experts. And I first got to know Peter Piat when I joined his board when he was head of UN AIDS in 2007. And he was leading and marshalling the world to fight HIV AIDS throughout the world, particularly in the developing world where the resources and the access to medicines were very limited at the time. Much of that turned around under your leadership, Peter. Uh, you're also a microbiologist. You're also head of the London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene an incredible leader who has fought epidemics his whole life. And like me, um, I've done much of this work too, was shocked to become one of the victims of this. So Peter, tell us a bit of your experience. I also want to mention that you're the advisor to the president of the European Commission on COVID. So even as you fought and all of us watched, you know, really praying for your recovery, we know you, you were continuing to help advise the world, so thank you for that. And you, two days later, were diagnosed. So Warren on March 17th, you on March 19th. Um, it starts actually a little bit earlier. On the, on the 17th of March, we had decided to all work remotely in our, um, you know, in our school, the university, before the government had imposed that because we felt that uh, uh, you know, the, the, the virus was spreading already, so I instructed everybody to work remotely so that's what i did and on the 19th indeed um in the evening i developed like high fever it was 38 and, and a half uh with a splitting headache and suddenly i felt like exhausted very very and and had myalgia so my all my muscles and my joints were you know uh, painful but indeed like one <laughs> said no coughing no shortness of breath um, absolutely not. Um, and I didn't really meet the case definition. But I kind of thought, you go, this is it uh, for some reason. But um, uh, because, you know, I'm, I've basically never been seriously ill in my whole life. Uh, I've been lucky. I'm 71. So I'm in, a, a, you know, the high risk category now. Um, 
which is an interesting feeling to have. I'm the oldest of us here. And um, <laughs> so that was that went on and on, but I continued to work. I'm kind of a workaholic, so, and then you know, because we were we went through this transition to organize everything, also the teaching to to uh, go online to etc. And uh, <clears throat> but every day got worse. And in contrast to you, Warren, uh, having access to tests in 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 London, the UK was extremely difficult. Very mm. difficult. So, uh, you know, it was total chaos, uh, to say the least. Uh, very very badly organized. And um, so, and in the public system, you know, we have a quite a decent national health service. However, uh, it was not possible to be tested because I did not meet the case definition. So, in the end, I got uh, tested through a friend in a private uh, clinic, and that was only a, a week later, and it was uh, positive. And um, and that's the only test, you know, that uh, that you know really I had initially. And then things got worse. I mean, every day was a bit worse, particularly splitting headache. In the end, I could hardly move my head and I could hardly sleep. The temperature uh, stayed on up. And so then I you know, couldn't sleep and all that. And so in the emergency room, they diagnosed me with uh, you know, bacterial pneumonia I had. But also my test was already yes. negative by then, which is quite typical. You know, and Warren, you're quite a, a, an interesting case. For, I'm a physician also. So I you know that you stay uh, positive that long because in most cases people five days, seven days. So and so I was negative, and so they said, "Oh, but you don't have it." I said, "Excuse me, here is my test result." You know, um, you know, I, I was a PCR a positive for coronavirus, and then um, but then what uh, what was interesting also is that they checked my um, oxygen levels. Uh, oxygen saturation level, as it's called, you know, you with the, you can measure it with the, you put your with finger, finger. Yeah. and uh, and I became obsessed by that afterwards to check it, oh. and that was at eighty three percent. Wow! And wow! Yeah, normally you're. I mean, most people have ninety eight, ninety nine. You know, at certainly over ninety five percent, and so they looked at me. How can you still breathe? I said, well, I'm, I'm not short of breath. It's, believe me, we, we live in a in an old uh, Georgian house, 200 years old, with four floors, and I go up and down the floors all the time. No problem. I was tired. So anyway, I was immediately put on uh, oxygen with a mask and uh, hospitalized. Uh, Heidi, my wife, was with me, and so she saw me, and ups, you go into full isolation, as you you know, and um, <clears throat> for um, you know for seven days. I was there with three other men who were also isolated and uh, with COVID-19, and um, we, uh, you know, my my symptoms didn't get ba uh, better for several days, but then after a week, fortunately, my oxygen saturation was, you know, 92, 93, and I was very happy with that. That that's, but I got uh, antibiotics for my bacterial pneumonia, and also. Um, some um, anticoagulants or blood thinner, which I think was probably one of the most important things I got. Um, fluids and uh, and high flow oxygen, and I was so happy that I was not put on a ventilator because that was my biggest fear. Because we know today uh, that um, even if you're totally healthy and you're put on a ventilator, yeah, there's some mortality there. So it was really high, high flow uh, oxygen that saved my life, basically. 
plus probably the uh, you know the anticoagulants. So then I went um, um, you know back home, and in the meantime, London was in lockdown, and I kind of insisted to take the the, the overground the tube. Now you can say that's crazy, uh, but I really wanted to see green the, the air um, and be free in a sense, um, and. Um, and, and you know, and there was, I took the overground and uh, there was basically one other person in a huge train. So, and I had a, a mask, so I was not risky for anybody. Um, and, uh, you know, I came home and it was really decompensation. So fortunately, I could communicate with my wife and my kids through, you know, um, FaceTime and so on and, and uh, WhatsApp. And I was thinking, you know, uh, if this would have happened 10 years ago, uh, I don't know when the, all this video conferencing uh, started, but it's not that much older than that. You know, would have been, or 30 years ago, 20 years ago, no, even no mobile phone. So, and there are some places in the world where people don't have that. So I felt, okay, we, at least I could communicate. So, and I thought it was over. I was still very tired and so on. But then one week later, I started becoming short of breath. Oh, my, one thing, uh, one of you interesting, my, voice became very hoarse. I mean, I could, you know, it was like I was a, a heavy smoker or something like that, you know, so, and I could only whisper. It was maybe on the one hand, lack of energy being very weak, but also uh, it was a direct uh, impact of the, of the infection. And, but then I got really worse and worse and uh, short of breath, uh, extremely uh, tired and so on. And I started coughing. And uh, so then I went to another hospital where I was uh, better treated, I must say, and they found that I had some kind of interstitial pneumonia. What is it? It is the reaction of the body. The inflammatory reaction is over, going in overdrive. And my lungs were, when you look at the an X-ray, normally it's a kind of black with, and you see the a bit of the heart and, the, you know, some bones and all that. It was all white. And uh, so it was all kind of the lung became stiffened. And that's why my oxygen saturation levels were back very low. But fortunately, then I didn't, uh, wasn't hospitalized. I could go back home. My um, uh, tests were still negative. Um, so it was no longer the virus directly. And that went on for several months. So uh, it took me two months uh, to, you know, getting out of bed was uh, really tiring. I'm normally a pretty energetic type of guy. And, um, yeah, I just couldn't. And I got very frustrated and a bit down also because I thought, what can I do? But there was not much I could do. And um, so that's, uh, but now I'm fine. I mean, uh, but it took about four months to, uh, to go more or less back to normal. That's, uh, yeah, wow. and I can go on forever, but that's... Okay. In a nutshell, yes. Yeah. No. Very important. Here. There's always a silver lining. Yeah. I lost seven kilos, and uh, <laughs> I've been trying through exercise and diet to lose weight. Never worked out, and now, and my and my appetite was gone, but now it's back, and yeah. I can enjoy good wine and good food again. So, life is good. I'm going to give an overview of my experience. It's so different, and the fact that I. Uh, contracted this two months later uh, in an evolving new public health phenomenon where we didn't know much about this disease. It was a bit of night and day between March, what health professionals understood, and May. 
And today we know even so much more. And so just to recount a bit of my experience, um, Asia Society's global headquarters, we also did the same thing. We shut down in New York early March, uh, right at the beginning. We were working closely with Governor Cuomo to bring in uh, PPEs from China to do an air bridge and help with our connections between the East and the West, between Asia and the U.S., uh, bringing in over you know, 30 million pieces of PPEs early on. Um, but we were doing this all remotely from our kitchen tables, like everyone else. And I decided early on to take my family, and we went to a small town in the West in the mountains that we love. I won't mention it, but I'm going to say quite a bit of praise, but also quite a bit of challenges that were faced there in this. There we um, holed up from March and never went back to New York, because New York went into a real crisis, as all of you followed you know, early on in this and came through and is now doing so much better. And I'm back in New York. But up in this town, we were very isolated, uh, wore masks. I know public health. I have led the fight against an epidemic in Haiti on cholera, which we haven't had any cases in the past 20 months. Um, you know, it, 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 public, public behavior, the behavior of individuals can nail these epidemics. And so I will say we took a very strict attitude, as we have in our institution, to really follow the public health rules and get out of the way of the front lines. We know that hospitals get overtaxed, systems get overtaxed. So we went uh, to a place where we wouldn't be that exposed. And I will say early on in where we ended up, which I didn't expect, there was a defiance against masks. And it's very hard. The deal with masks, right, is it takes two to tango. Right. If one person has a mask and the other doesn't. And that, you know, we, we restricted our exposure, my family and I. But when you go to get food or something, you had some exposure. I guess that's how I got it. I had very little exposure. But I will just say that uh, in mid-May, I took a hike every day. We could go on trails without exposure to anyone. And I um, felt... Like I had a flu, kind of. I had an annoying little cough. I had a headache, terrible headache, and my muscles were very weak. And I joked, oh, I have COVID. I really didn't think there was any possibility because we had very little exposure, and it didn't feel that dramatic. And But I felt really exhausted, and I spent a couple of days unable to take my daily hike. And two days later on Friday, I thought, I'm just going to go out and do a a very gentle walk just to come back and get some fresh air. And about a half of a block in to this walk, I knew I was going to collapse and felt I was going to crack my head open on some rocks because I every inch of my body was shaking like a leaf and I couldn't get oxygen. And I went back to the house and told my son, you know, I, I, I don't know what's happening. I think I'm having a heart attack. I have no underlying conditions. And I said, I, my entire body was trembling from head to toe from just the slightest exertion. And we went into a small emergency room with amazing public health officials, I will say. And I came in and said, I think I'm having a heart attack. And they asked, and I said, I have a slight cough. They said, we're putting you in the COVID room. I said, I, this isn't COVID. And they said, we're putting you in the COVID room. 
And we got in there and they said, listen, everyone thought this was a lung disease. It's a blood disease. It's a blood clotting disease. New research is coming. Our little hospital, we spent all night doing the research because there isn't a proper flow of information, but we're studying what's happening and we're going to test you and your blood clotting factors. So there's an indicator called a D-dimer. I didn't know about this, that tests your clotting factor. In addition to the oxygen, mine, Peter, was like at 90. Everything else looked fine, but that blood clotting factor is supposed to be around 200-ish and came back over 1,000. And so they had me immediately do a CAT scan and um, chest x-rays, thinking they'd find blood clots, because now I think there's an understanding that this disease causes a massive production of blood clots, micro blood clots that clog your organs and block uh, access to oxygen. It's not just that your lungs can't produce as much. And this is where I think the traveling of those blood clots, uh, Peter's the physician expert here, he can sort through this, but could produce embolisms that could go to your heart or to your brain causing the strokes. Everything people read about was strokes. I literally had not read these articles and when they tested that and saw that blood clotting factor, there were no blood, no, there were no pulmonary embolisms from the CAT scan. And so I think very wisely, uh, my house was 15 minutes from the emergency room, they sent me home and said, come in if there's any slight change, but we don't want you on a ventilator. The news was already coming in that, Peter, you had picked up early on, that they're not necessarily helping people, the ventilators. And so um, they, you know, to test your oxygen, to be at home, and I was glad to go home for a week. I will tell you that there's something out there that people talk about, which is the COVID cliff that happens on day 13-ish, after 10, and I thought, um, a week later, Friday would be day 13. And I thought, I said to my son and my family there, wow, I've made it past the cliff. Today's day 13. I'm going to have a cup of coffee. I think I'm getting, you know, coming back. And about a half an hour later, I was doubled over in such pain. I felt like someone had stabbed me with a 10 inch knife, like right in the chest. And my son said, you can get in the car. We're going to the emergency room. And lo and behold, I had a pulmonary embolism. So these blood clots were moving, sitting right next to the aorta to my heart. And uh, they caught it right away and put me on blood thinners, which, as Peter said, was not the protocol. And even then was not the protocol. But these doctors said they were flying on their own. They had to make judgments to be able to address what they were seeing in the reality on the front, front lines of the medical care. And those blood thinners, I believe, really saved my life because two, within two days, that cliff, and I could feel my body falling off literally a health cliff, began to turn around, and I've steadily improved since then. So I really just want to say here, you know, for all those who have lost family members, it is terrible. And Peter, you and I plugged in on this to talk with each other. You, no one wants to be a medical experimenter on the front lines of something like this when we don't have full knowledge. 
And for all of us, we felt what it feels like to be exposed where doctors really don't know and don't know exactly what to do, and they're doing their best. And so to the public health professionals out there who have felt alone or they haven't had the information or they haven't had the tools, I think all of us have seen you know, the miraculous job many of them have done and also how frustrating it's been for family members who can't speak on the ventilator and lose you know, that precious time. And you know, that now we have more tools in the toolkit. So I'm gonna stop there with my experience. I just have a couple of questions. So Warren, you, you were not on the ventilator also. No, no, yeah. no need. Mm. So, you know, this experience that we have, I think Peter, when I talked to you in June, when I felt a little better, you were feeling better. You said six months from now, we'll know a lot more. Right now, we don't know. And even I think for Peter and I, who both went on the blood thinners, we don't know how long. There are no set protocols, even with these medications that we've been taking. So a number of the questions that have come in have been about, you know, once you recover, are you still on medications? What is the path? And I just want to ask you both that. Are you still on the medications? What do you think you know about keeping yourself healthy? Warren, do you want to go first? Uh, for me, no. I stopped medication actually after I was in the hospital in Bangkok, the number 10th day. Then the doctor said, you don't need to take anything. Just let the virus shedding by itself. That took me like uh, four weeks total. So like six weeks I was in the hospital. And... Ever since then, I didn't take any, any medications. And I kept do exercising every day and singing. I, I, you know, I felt fine, really. I mean, did not affect me anything like after effects. Not really. I, I, I exercise actually more now than before. More mm -hmm. self-conscious about health. Yeah. I go to the gym every day. <laughs> before, I would go once a week. Now, every day, I do live things and things like that. So I don't feel anything uh, like affecting my voice or my my health. Thank mm. goodness for that. Yeah. Mm. And how about you, Peter? Yeah, it's a bit different. Well, I, I got uh, was on very high um, doses of uh, steroids, so it's a prednisolone, and uh, so intravenously for several months, and that was probably um, really important to get rid of to to suppress the immune response, and so that my lungs could uh, clear, and that. That has happened, so that that's finished. But I'm still on blood thinners, and uh, the doctor said now that it's probably going to be for the rest of my life, which well, I find a bit depressing. But uh, anyway, it's preventing stroke. I'm going to um, ask um, you, Warren. You have said yep. that without health, you are nobody. Yep, absolutely. So now it sounds like you've come to a real a newfound appreciation of the importance of health. Absolutely. Before I got COVID-19, you know, I was quite a healthy person. I hardly got a cold or a fever or anything. Like, I think the last time I got a fever, I don't, mem I don't even remember when I got a fever. So normally, I, I, eat, I enjoy food. I eat a lot healthy. And singing is very good exercise, actually. You know, singing is healthy, you know, especially... The, yeah. All kind of singing is about canto, you know, use a lot of breathing and then, you know, singing loudly and like that. So uh, for me, before I didn't, you know, I never thought I would get, <laughs> I would get infected by COVID-19, really seriously. 
I was like, I didn't want to wear a mask. Even it was in Hong Kong, people started to wear masks on the street. I didn't want to wear it. I said, no, I'm fine. I'm strong. No way I'll get infected. That's why, you know, I didn't wear that mask. And that's why I got infected. So for the people who still are not willing to wear masks, I advise you to do so because that really helps, really, preventing the, this virus spreading. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that has struck me, that in an epidemic, Peter, you have lived on the front lines of epidemics. I have quite a bit in my previous work around the world and my current work. Um, it seems to me there's two possible approaches to an epidemic, either the government controls everything or individuals take responsibility for behavior. And I think sometimes we underestimate how much power an individual has over their yeah. health sovereignty, right? With Absolutely. the choices they make. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Because we've seen whole nations turn around with a hand-washing campaign, as you know. And sometimes we take yeah. the basics for granted. And just as Warren's saying, wow, a mask can you know, prevent suffering for yourself and others. No, I totally agree. First, uh, I should say also, just like Warren, I know exercise every day, which before was only the weekend. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> I mean, there is the... A positive, uh, you know, uh, behavior change in myself, and I and I think I'll continue to do that. I also because I was never ever really sick, so I never uh, I, I like took me. for granted that I was healthy, and now I know it's not the case. So that's one thing. But uh, and that probably is a good thing for whatever comes next, because there will be other issues and getting older and so on, but also other epidemics. But I agree with you, that it's. The government is important and there need to be policies and uh, structures in place for testing and what have you. But also it's individual behavior, our collective individual behavior. As mm. Warren said, every single person wears a mask, you know, uh, you know, where there are other people, you know, then frankly, this uh, and, and washes hands, uh, keeps some distance. I mean, this virus has no chance. But as soon as the, you know, people are a bit closer, you know, they will jump on it. I have no idea how I got infected because I, because of my job and my personality, I have a pretty active uh, personal life and uh, social life and restaurants and uh, giving talks, COVID and on other things and meeting with students, with faculty, with uh, media and so on. So I don't know. It could have been any of the, these places. But um, no, we, we need... Uh, uh, I mean, very worried about in some countries uh, that there are uh, this protest against the uh, wearing masks, that there are mm -hmm. uh, demonstrations even. So uh, in Europe, we have it. It's just like people who refuse to give vaccines to their kids, uh, you know, uh, this anti-vax movement. That's, that's going to kill a lot of people. And what's very worrisome is that vaccine is now, frankly, our only real hope to get out of this epidemic because this virus will not go away one fine day. But yet, um, surveys show that uh, up to 50% of people uh, you know, say, I won't take that vaccine, not me. So, mm -hmm. you know, just I hope- 50, they will. five, zero or one, five? Five, five zero, five, zero. Globally. Yeah, no, that's in the, in the US. Um, in, in, uh, in Britain, it's uh, one in four, you know, 25% in France, a bit higher. I mean, these, these figures may change once the vaccine is really there, but we shouldn't take it for granted. 
Uh, and right. that's also, uh, again, your point, uh, you know, it's not enough to have the technology, it's not enough to have the government policies, it's our collective responsibility. And I still remember first time ever I went to Japan was in 1981 or so. And I saw people wearing a mask in the street and I said, what's going on here? Are they paranoid? They're germophobes or so? And then someone told me, no, 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 no. This is an act of uh, community responsibility, of caring about others. When you have a cold, when you, whatever, you know, you cough, you, you know, you cover your mouth and your nose and that's how you uh, protect others. And that's the kind of cultural behavior change that we, we need to know. Probably handshaking is gone forever. Uh, you know, <coughs> all that. Um, wearing masks when we have something, that should be part of our culture, even when COVID is over. Yeah. And Peter, it seems uh, almost unbelievable, and Warren, that if you look back in history, when we see the pictures and drawings of these epidemics that have plagued humanity and terrorized humanity. You see those masks with the long cone that were still back to the basics. Like, I think there's some kind of perception the public has that it must be much more sophisticated than putting on a mask to be able to prevent a horrible, you know, microbe from entering you. But it seems like our ancestors knew something about preventing the spread of disease. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, as Peter was saying that, uh, you were saying that about the uh, government, either the government or the individual take actions. I think for that, the Chinese government, now I'm in mainland China in Guangzhou, the, the health code system is really working. Everybody has a health code in the iPhone, you know, on, in the iPhone. So everywhere you go, you can be traced where you have been, and in case someone gets sick, you get informed right away. Or if you get sick, they know right away. It's so very this is an app, like a tracing app. Yep, a tracing mm -hmm. app and a health code app in everybody's oh, iPhone yeah. mm -hmm. and a health code. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah. So everywhere you go, they would they know <laughs> because the iPhone, you know, is very easy to tracing. So no matter where you are in each city, even in which district, it shows an iPhone. Well, of course, you know, some, some yeah. of them, okay, no more, no privacy for that, but for the pandemic right now, you need some kind of strict system to control this virus, you know, yeah. give and take. So right now, China, mainland China is controlling really well. The whole country is free now, free to travel, but everybody's really wearing masks, even in the shopping mall, temperature check and mask. Everywhere you go, in a hotel, temperature check and mask. So yeah. it's, it's working. It's yeah. working. No, I agree. I mean, uh, you know, some other countries like Korea also did the same thing. And so, yeah. but, but I think in China, it, it is part of your phone. It, you don't have to apply for it. I think that is really key. So you don't have, that's good. But, but you're right, Josette, when you think of it, the, the current measures are not more sophisticated than in medieval times for the plague. Uh, and even in these days, then they didn't know that there were microbes, viruses, and what have you. But the concepts were absolutely the same. The big difference the today, miasma, is, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, yes, miasma and so on. And and I'm here, and not far since you know the rise in in Provence. There is somewhere Le Mur de la Peste, the 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 wall the of the plague, where the plague wall, where they try to build the plague a, a wall to. Um, stop the plague from uh, you know moving into from marseille to this uh, part of the of provence 
Of course, it didn't work. Uh, walls have never worked. But these measures that we described, they work. And uh, the big difference today is, of course, that we, we hopefully will have a vaccine. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then we can protect ourselves. But uh, we're not there yet. Eh? We still right. have to go right away. Uh, and then we can protect ourselves. But uh, we're not there yet. Eh? We still right. have to go right away. That'll do it for this week's episode. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, and check out our past episodes on our show page at asiasociety.org podcast. We'd like to send our best wishes to all of our listeners and hope you stay healthy and connected during this difficult time. We're all in this together. I'm Dan Washburn. See you next time.